writers, agents, and publishers, for the first time since the Gutenberg Press, find themselves lost in a maze of mystery as technology alters the shape of the publishing industry. Searching for Answers is a group of writers throwing pop culture, writing, and publishing into a crucible of clarity, passion, and humor. This group is the Right Pack. Welcome back to Right Pack Radio. This is your host, David Allen Lucas, author of sci-fi, mystery, horror, and poetry. With me today is my co-host... Kathleen Cayambe, pen named his second and Vita, writer of paranormal romance and LGBT fiction. Uh, Jennifer Solzer, I'm an illustrator and a fantasy author, and I just restarted querying my novel this last week or so. Yay! Very scary. Fedora Amos, I write Victorian whodunits, and I should be home this afternoon doing my five-star tip sheet. But <laughs> I'm here with you guys because you're that important. And we love you. Aww. Thank you. <laughs> Uh, Brad R. Cook, uh, steampunk author, got a book coming out this November, uh, president of St. Louis Writers Guild, and I'm a publisher. I'm Matt McGraw, uh, I'm an amateur short story writer, and I'm also working on a picture book called Patrick the Spider with Jennifer. And for those who have missed it, because we constantly stare at him when he calls himself an amateur, he's calling himself an amateur because he has not been paid. I ain't got paid. <laughs> I ain't got paid yet. So. I'm Melanie Quaney, I write... Uh, sci-fi, fantasy, and non-fiction, and not that I actually necessarily ha- will meet this goal, but my goal is to have the first draft of my fantasy novel done by the end of November. Yeah. Hey. Uh, my name is Meredith Tate. I write speculative YA and NA fiction. Uh, my first book comes out next year. Excellent. Congrats. And today we're going to talk about social issues and litmus tests. For example, the Bechdel test, which is used to to determine if two women are being written appropriately and not as tropes. Um, I don't think it does that. No, No, I don't. You have uh, have the definition handy, right? So what is the Bechdel test? Okay, the Bechdel test. The Bechdel test asks if women of fiction features at least two women that talk to each other about something other than a man. The requirement that the two women must be named is sometimes added. Oh, sorry, this is from Wikipedia. Many contemporary works fail this test of gender bias. On average, films that pass the test have been found to have a lower budget than others, but have comparable or better financial performance. Hmm. The test is named after American cartoonist Alison Bechdel. In uh, 1985, she had a character in her comic strip, Dykes watch out for uh, Dykes, Dykes watch to watch, watch out, out for excuse me okay voice the idea which she attributed to friend Lisa Liz Wallace the test was originally conceived for evaluating films but has since been applied to other media and that's so one way to, go ahead three questions is there more than one woman check okay mm-hmm. and they do or do not have to be named apparently yeah um, do they have lines do they speak to each other that's two. Mm-hmm. Do they speak to each other about something that is not that hot protagonist dude? Yes. Yeah. Other exactly. than a man, usually other than the protagonist man. Yep. And frankly, two women could be talking to each other about their shoes and technically pass, 
And it's not saying that it's not a still yeah, there's, there's yeah, definitely. Sex I don't think that's exactly the, the part is, of what very, they're saying there. It's very, very broad. Yeah. It should be anyway. The Bechdel test is more of a measurement. Yes. It's not, you don't have to pass it in order to have a strong female character, but it helps to catch a weak female character. And just because yeah. you pass it doesn't mean you don't have only weak female characters. It's just... Uh, yes. Yeah. But and this you, is the reason why we go on litmus tests, because I want to talk about... There's more social issues out there than just in late just women's topics, there's, which in itself is filled with social issues. I don't want to um, compromise that question by any means. But are there other litmus tests and that can be applied to other social issues? And what are other social issues we could write about? And a couple weeks ago, by this recording... We talked about Upton Sinclair, the jungle, and which led to the creation of the FDA because the social issue back then was the purity of food. So what are some social issues you guys look at, either when you write or that you um, read about, that you enjoy, and then let's go from there to talk about how do you test if it's really talking about the issues. And if we can apply the Bechdel test or something similar to it to kind of double check. Exactly. Or the reverse of the Bechdel test, which is kind of interesting if you're saying, are there two or more men and if you totally failed it on the woman front, you might have to check it on the men front. Yeah. If it's a mostly female cast, then the likelihood of you passing the Bechdel test is high. Mm-hmm. But you have to turn it on its ear and see if the man is only there to be arm candy for the female fantasy... Uh, self-insert character. But on the flip side, mostly male cast. Yeah. yeah. And I, I think another importance of the Bechdel test and other litmus tests is just to make sure that your characters have some level of depth anyway. Because, I mean, I feel like reading a book where the characters have hobbies and have interests, aside from their love lives or um, being attracted to another character, I feel like that adds depth to your whole story as a whole. Um, I think for the Men, the reverse, depending on the genre, you might want to ask, in addition, do they talk about the female love interest or are they talking about something to do with violence beating somebody up? You know, just expand yeah. it just a little bit, you know, because. Any stereotype. Yeah. Or you could do it, choose any stereotype you want if it's mm-hmm. a different type of thing. Love is displayed by anger. Yeah. I'm a very angry man. A very I not passionate. Have... Yes, passionate, yes. <laughs> well, what I was going to throw out is just that. In all of this, it's about stereotypes. I mean, you shouldn't mm-hmm. stereotype women that they only care about boys. You shouldn't stereotype men. You shouldn't stereotype any minority or anything like that. So not writing stereotypes is probably going to help you pass all these litmus tests. Okay. Or on the flip side, writing human beings there you go. will help you pass the litmus test because when you write a human being, they come with all that complexity and you're not propping a bunch of cardboard cutouts up in the corners of your novel for your protagonist to point at as they walk by. Well, I think a lot of times with social issues, which is one that pulls back to, mm-hmm. you do end up seeing a lot of cardboard cutouts, to use your term, I like that. Mm-hmm. Cardboard cutout characters. I didn't coin it. Yeah, I know. <laughs> and I know anybody who's been listening to this to this series knows I do not like John Steinbeck. <laughs> And that is actually, though, I'm not going to pick on him, but that was his downfall in Grapes of Wrath. His villains, if you will, his antagonists were cardboard cutouts. And he was doing a social issue topic that really was very prominent at that time, Mm -hmm. which was the the dispossessed. That might be this time, too. Yeah. Yeah, (laughs) this time especially. So... 
what are some of the so let's talk let's take the Bechtel test um, Fedora you're quiet I'm going to pick on you that's because I have a different litmus test that I want to talk about oh perfect please Oh, you want me to talk about it now? Oh, yes, please. Oh, okay. Let's do it. My litmus, litmus test is time. If a piece of literature of any kind comes across the centuries even, hmm. it's often, and I think always, in fact, as I look at Western literature as a whole, it's always because it has a social issue at its heart, and that social issue is still important today. Pick out the great literature from Spain, England, France, Italy, Germany, the United States, pick out the one work that perhaps represents everything best and see what's happened to it throughout time and you'll find that it's been imitated in many ways. It's become operas and it's become musicals and it has lasted and it's because of the social issue which just transfers across all time. I think that's one reason why Shakespeare is so popular still. Absolutely. Yeah, but um, I, I think that's a good point. But I also think about all the voices that were not considered important enough to have their stories told or to tell their own stories. So on the one hand, I think social justice issues and issues of the times are very much what come through. But I'm also thinking about women's issues and like minorities and I don't think that comes through nearly as much. I think it does. I mean look at some of the great things. Take Victor Hugo, Les Miserables for example. It is about the submerged underclasses and how injustice is compelled upon them constantly from time to time. And you could say the same thing about Dickens, you could say the same thing about Thomas Mann, you could say the same thing about a lot of other pieces of literature. Ideas. that have risen to the top and stood that test of time. I'm going to toss out one. And it's not, a lot of people wouldn't call it classic because it is of a certain time period, but my favorite author from the Harlem Renaissance, Charles W. Chestnut, he conquered, he looked at a lot of racism. But he didn't look at racism of necessarily white versus black. He looked at the racism inside of the black community at the time, and I think it still goes on today. From what I've seen, I'm not black, so I'm, I'm can't confirm it, but from my black friends I've heard it still goes on, which is people are still judged by how dark or light their skin is, and that's something he did constantly focused on. Dude, dude, dude. Okay. That's why um, Lupita Nyong'o is so amazing, because she is dark. She is Kenyan. Dark. Mm-hmm. Like, and she is on like so many best dress lists, and the fashion police mm-hmm. love her. And I was like, oh my gosh, an actual person who is black is being celebrated as friggin' gorgeous because she is in Hollywood. What's the name again? Um, Lupita Nyong'o. Thank you. Nyong'o. She played um, in 12 Years a Slave. She was one of the characters. Oh, perfect. She perfect. went back to the next Star Wars. Yeah. yeah. Something oh, like that. that? Okay, that's who it is. Okay. <laughs> of course you know when it's a Star Wars. <laughs> I know. It's a Star Wars reference. You know, I would know this. What a bunch of Oscars. Star Wars right now. She looks gorgeous, though. And she's got years short, short hair and dark skin. Like, mm-hmm. that never happens. Mm-hmm. Never. Well, I've noticed in general, what used to, what is usually in a society considered most beautiful, there are big, big exceptions to this, mm-hmm. is the middle of society. So, for instance, um, people of color that are lighter toned and basically white people that are, relatively speaking, darker toned are usually considered the most attractive. Nice tans. 
Yes, yeah. a nice tan. Or, or bronzing, whatever. Mm -hmm. Sorry. Yeah. Um, if anyone wants to go look into a kettle of fish, tub of worms, what do you call them? Can of worms? Yeah, can of worms. There we yeah. go. Kettle of worm fish. <laughs> um, if anyone wants to go open a can of worms on the internet, um, look up uh, beauty and um, black women and skin color and actual racial breakdown of people because mm -hmm. most of the people that you see that are quote-unquote black in movies is like, oh my goodness, they're glamorous. They're, they're mixed in some way. Yeah. Some mm -hmm. very basic one parent is this one parent is that way mm -hmm. well, cough, think, cough, 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 and I think mm -hmm. modern day just not 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 stepping away from the race side Sorry. racism no no that's fine <laughs> I, I started with you you went to beauty and that's another social issue modern day we have such a focus on the beautiful woman and it's actually transferring over to the quote-unquote beautiful guy the feminine the feminizing of men in a way well, that's um, also about the youth. So yeah, about the feminizing of men, though. Cause oh, I the, like the, the, the focus... Any boy band. Oh, okay. <laughs> any boy band. <laughs> but, but any of the focuses that are on the focus <laughs> of trying to turn the man into a metrosexual is where I'm going to throw this at, throw this into it. Um, but Man, there's nothing wrong with grooming. <laughs> no, no, there is something very right with it. <laughs> it is tiresome, though. <laughs> it is. But take a look. Take a look at. Um, he said, thoughtfully stroking his beard, <laughs> <laughs> which he shaves infrequently. Yes. Try the legs next. But time. take a look as an example of what's been discovered or been talked about on these model magazines, where they have been airbrushed mm. to look prettier than they really are. And are. I can think of a, actually, an event that occurred at a movie theater. A girl who was seven years old, give or take, skinny as a rail, is going into the bathroom with her mom. Her mom's like, you're not skinny enough. You got, you need to be skinnier to, to look more beautiful. She's seven years old. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that was a focus. So anyway, what are some other social issues? I just threw out beauty out there. You, you, we talked about racism. A little well, bit. Well, and ways to test for it. Um, if you're being I, I want to talk about classism eventually, Good. but... First, I wanted to the tropes, mm -hmm. um, the noto, um, Native Americans. For a while, the stereotype was the noble, the noble savage. Then it's the uh, stereotyped um, mystic sage. Yes, thank you. I was trying to think of a way to put that. Yeah. So it's like for a while, if you had a Native American character in it, they couldn't be real. They were, like you said, the, the wise man type person. The same thing happened. Thank the Victorian age for that. Yeah. Aww. The same thing's happened with uh, black representation too, though, is yep. that they've gone from uh, from trying to turn your black character into a default villain or a default mm -hmm. you know, lower class person and now kind of almost to make up for that, all of Hollywood mm -hmm. casts you know, Morgan Freeman and everything. <laughs> he's but, always plays God. He's <laughs> always he's plays also. God. He's the all-knowing... Yeah, but that's powerful, smart, <laughs> wise. Well, well, it's not just him. You he know, sounds like God. there's a whole bunch, but it's it feels almost like you know. Well, you know, we're really kind of sorry. But is so. that a, is that a necessary but progression for society? No, no. I'm going to say okay, it's I have a problem with that only in the sense that no, I mean, so many black characters to today people. are written as gangsters or thugs. That's still or true. Poor Racism or is or dead true. because we have them on places other people can see. Ha. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. Racism's not dead. Racism's you know, dead that, because we can see them. And that's yes, one racism's thing. Racism's dead because we have a black president. Didn't you hear? Oh, great. That's oh, the one thing goodness. I'm glad you brought up. 
<laughs> is I mentioned before this recording started um, the TV show The Wire, which is now off the air, but for, was for five years, had, was considered to have the most minority actors in it. And those minority actors, yes, there were gangbangers, actors. There were um, drug-dependent actor, you know, characters. There were also cops. There were, de- there were teachers. There were higher-ups in the police force and so forth. That try- and it showed it. It didn't treat them as a stereotype. It treated them as real human beings. Um, you can use a stereotype. There's nothing yeah. wrong with having a character that's a stereotype. The problem is when you rely on that, mm-hmm. when all your characters are stereotypes. Well, when you don't go else beyond on top it. Yeah, exactly. I, I, to, I, don't, I haven't watched the show, but I feel like if we're talk, going to talk about this, we have to bring it up. And I, it's a shame. I don't, I don't know if anyone here has watched it, but Orange is the New Black. I want to see that no. so badly. Yeah. Well, I've heard Netflix has canceled it. What? I've heard that no. Too. No, and I also heard that they had renewed it for a third season. So, and even I saw that, don't worry, guys, it really has been <laughs> oh renewed for a real se- third okay. season. So, anyway, um, I in- listened to an interview with the author of the book that that series is based on. And just to, you know, the book is a memoir. The show is not about the author's life. Mm-hmm. Okay. So uh, they sort of like start out at the same place that she starts out in the book, then they go into a new direction. Mm-hmm. So anyway, um, well, they take the setup and they move from there. It's inspired by real events in the same way that most horror movies are inspired by real events. Uh, they <laughs> That's why you go could say inspired by. Yeah. It's like the, the part about this that was inspired was that this is supposedly a haunted house. After that, we just made it up. Well, so the social issue is a haunted house remains okay, well, this in is a blighted an, uh, area. But the, sorry, or just the new black. The author is an upper middle class white woman. Actually, I don't know if she's upper middle class, but she's definitely upper class, highly educated. And she went to federal prison for uh, 11 months, 13 months, you know, something like that. And she really did get out after that. She didn't spend two or three years in jail like she or prison like she is in Orange and the New Black. Mm-hmm. But um, what happened is um, one time she uh, basically helped her... Gr- then, at the t- then at the time her girlfriend... Um, uh, Moved some cash for drugs. Yeah. That was it, and then uh, like five years later, the the woman was captured and she got in on a plea deal. But she pleaded rather than you know with m- minimum sentencing things. So, um, but all the characters on the TV show are stereotypes, but then they go beyond them, and they're pretty much all the main characters are women, and a whole lot of them are minorities. Isn't there a transgender woman too? Yep. Okay. So it's a big step forward too in terms of yeah having transgender. Oh, and that transgendered woman is really a transgendered woman. Mm-hmm. Okay, I need to pull us back to social issues. Yeah, <laughs> sorry, what? getting away from stereotypes. Pulling back to social issues, uh, even though that could be that, life is, in prison is a social issue. And transgendered people on or trans, TV, right? Mm-hmm. Like or even RuPaul's Drag Race, there have been some transgendered contestants, and they were terrified about coming out. Mm-hmm. What drag? Oh, RuPaul's Drag Race. It okay. is a competition for drag queens, and oh, there have been a few contestants who are... America's Next Top Model for Drag Queens. Yes. Okay. Oh, yeah. Um, you wanted yeah. to talk about classism. Yeah. Um, in Mysteries... I, did you have something? No, no. Okay. <laughs> well, I was I just thinking Origin the New Black deals with classism, too, a lot. So. I, Fedora, well, you're going to have to address your own yeah. mystery writing on this. I know a lot of times what I try to do, and especially my one of my heroines in the mystery writing field, P.D. James... 
does this a lot is a focus of the social classes. Of course, in England, you have really strong stratosphere of, snow, of social classes, strats breaking of it. Do you find you write in your mysteries a, a certain level of social classes and, and there's a conflict between them? or? Well, one of the things I did deliberately with my heroine, Jemima McBussell, is to put her in between. Her father is dead, so her mother now has turned their home into a boarding house so that they can all survive. But also she has rich relatives so that they can take her into higher society while she is sort of mired in the lower class herself with a lot of chores and getting a job. And she is somewhere in between. She has possibilities every place. And that allows me to travel from the upper classes to the lower to anywhere in between. And I think I need that kind of uh, possibility. I find with my writing that I really have got a shrinking middle class and focus on both the poor and the more affluent, shall I say, and the way that gets played out and the way they prey on the social classes. Either one of you two. Um, Fedora, mm -hmm. I noticed that you said um, your character was kind of in between, and I think that's something that is true about a lot of main characters that I like because they kind of travel between worlds, and it sounds like you're using that to delve into social issues. Does I certainly try. So, like, uh -huh. does anybody else have, like, social issues that they like to use that kind of character for? Like, clearly I have pet social issues. Mm -hmm. I'm sure you guys do, too. Mm -hmm. You just haven't spouted off about them. Oh, I've got one, I'm, I, which <laughs> so I'm going to talk about yours. first, but go okay. ahead. So I write a steampunk novel called The Iron Horseman, and though it is a, a fun adventure romp through Europe, mm -hmm. uh, it is written in the Victorian age, and uh, every one of the books will have an ism. Uh, the first one is classism, so oddly Perfect. topical. Um, and I do. I have a character who's American, uh, who is not necessarily from the most economically advantageous, you know, parts of America. And now he finds himself at Eton College, which is the most exclusive boarding school in England. Uh, it's where all the nobility are taught. So he's thrust into a world that doesn't accept him, that considers him nothing more than a, a dirty little colonist. And, you know, uh, that's, you know, he, through that, he kind of merges up and down throughout the levels and... Because of that, he's allowed to, because he's from both worlds, uh, I should say interacts with both worlds, he can move between them. Which for me allows me to then show the reader, you know, the differences between, say, like the airship crew, who's mostly of a poorer class, and, you know, they have a very jovial kind of lifestyle, to the upper class, who are very structured, very rigid, and, you know, have a very set lifestyle. Um, so I use that. And part of the reason I do that is in, is in, is in kind of a you know, uh, an ode back to uh, some of that great Victorian literature, like Oliver Twist or any of the other great Victorian novels, which all dealt with classism, because there was so much classism in the Victorian age that was being focused on. It was like the, you know, the trendy thing of the day. <laughs> and it's still it is. relevant it's, today. It is still very relevant. Right now, our classes are going in separate directions, exactly. not yes. getting They're closer, exactly. getting farther apart. Which yeah. why, why put is it, it hard to not favor one group or the other, or do you find that you have characters in both that kind of exemplify the feeling of the whole? Well, I have, a, I have characters from all. So I have a character, you know, my main character is what you would almost call middle class. Uh, my you know, he then travels with someone, a baron's daughter, who is obviously from the upper class, and then he also travels around with an Indian Sikh, uh, who is very much, he's an orphan, he's just trying to find his way in the world, uh, and has found a way in the world, so. 
Yes. I do try and write to all those different avenues, but that's my way of trying to show it, to reveal it, to lay it out in front of you, and so the reader can then take what they need from it. One of my pet, what appears to be a pet issue, and I say that because it's constantly coming up in a lot of my writing, and if you've listened to Jennifer describe my writing in the past, hmm. she missed this. Oh. It is sexual exploitation. Sex slavery, sexual abuse, child abuse, um, you name it. It appears ever so often into something I'm writing, and that is going across the classes as well. Is it necessarily, because I haven't read a whole, whole lot of your stuff. I understand. Um, is it necessarily um, <laughs> sexual abuses, or is it power imbalances? Actually, it is sexual abuses. It's both. Let me, let me answer that with both. It is everything from being the sexual abuse of an elder with a child. Now, of course, I don't go into detail on it. I don't want to. I just go I talk about the issue. The issue is addressed. Right, the issue is addressed. It is a case of women being, for example, being taken out of the Middle East or out of Russia and so forth and put into sexual slavery, brought over to America. For the sexual slaves, it is talking about the narcotics scene and the use of sex to buy the drugs. So then it sounds like sex for power in sex some for, kind of way. Right. By the by, we're putting a trigger warning on this episode. Sorry, guys. Isn't it way too late? No, we can do that before it's posted, dude. We have ways. This is when we decided to put a trigger warning yes. yes. in the episode. Um, another issue, this isn't directly about social, but something I've noticed because I've... Um, the upper class treats lower classes as invisible in certain contexts. So, for example, um, one that I've been in, but um, not... I'm blanking on the politically correct words, but servants. Whether or not servants are permanently considered an underclass to them or not. So if you're in somebody's house, for instance, when I was in someone's house working as a tutor for one of the children of the house, conversations went on within my hearing that were private family conversations that had no, that if I had been a member, if they had been thinking about it, if they had been thinking about me being there, they would have had the conversation not in my hearing. Mm-hmm. So like the nanny diaries kind of yes. thing? Yes. Mm-hmm. And it's not just with child care workers. It's also um, when I was a grad student, I, my, uh, the professor that I was the mentor, you know, I've over, you know, I walked in. He actually, you know, waved me in. He, the phone rang. He stopped talking to me. He picked up the phone and had a very personal phone call, conversation all while me and the other person was standing there. And this is why The Help is one of the big novels and why, yeah. you know, Nanny Diaries and all these things. And it sounds like a pretty good start to a blackmail mystery. I mean, yeah, this wasn't blackmail. It was just things that, you know, <laughs> no, this you could. could. It could no, but the thing is, it wasn't blackmailable. <laughs> you know, that would be the weirdest lead-in. It's about like, blackmail. I just happened to overhear something really terrible, and then, like, the guy puts down the phone and goes, oh, oh, hell, what was I thinking? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Well, and there's a there's a phrase, little pictures have big ears, children hear things. <laughs> I have not heard that phrase. Please say it again so I can oh. write that down. Little pictures have big ears. Pictures. Yeah, like pictures on the wall have big ears. No, so. little pictures. Oh, like pictures like full of things? so they <laughs> Full of things. Oh, cool. Okay. I'm learning things. Thank you, guys. I love you both. Children. And the idea of an invisible class actually goes across cultures. Mm-hmm. 
In fact, I will tell you, historically speaking, as well as up to modern day, those who have studied the art of ninjutsu <laughs> have used themselves, have hidden themselves among the invisible class to get around. Back then, it was as priests and so forth. Um, there's farm a workers. Yeah. farm workers. Um, there is a hilarious video. I call it hilarious because I'm laughing at the fact that it's true, where they compared ninjas to modern-day um, special forces, and they take a special forces group and a ninja group, or ninja, one ninja, and they, the guys are supposed to go in and catch or quote-unquote kill a certain target that is under protection. And, of course, they, the special forces guys are comparing themselves to ninjas, and they go in there and they storm in. The ninja, however, goes in, pretending he's part of an engineering part of, a, of the cast or of a crew of the show. Oh, I need to fix this light bulb here. I need to do this. And he comes back, he leaves, he comes back, he leaves, and he gets in because he becomes invisible to the people. Red 2 has a scene in like that, although the, um, the martial artist in question walks right up to the head of the company, goes through all the screenings, walks right up to him, has no weapons on his person, is given a piece of paper. The guy is dead in full view of his security cameras. Nobody knows until he's already gone. <laughs> beautiful. So there's lots of social, there are lots of social issues dealing with the invisible class. Yeah. And you can use them as part of your story about ninjas. Well, yes, you can. The more you know. Now, the opposite is true, too. So being a part of the lower class can put you... So... Uh, what do you call it? passing? Passing for a member of an upper class also sometimes mm. make you invisible. It's all context dependent. Yeah. And there's lots of good stories about that too, about like yeah. poor guys like putting on the garb of the Monte Cristo. Yeah, and just pretending, and then they eventually kind of make it by faking it, mm-hmm. or they kill some dude for doing something bad. Modern day, switch places with a prince. I haven't read that story. Prince and the Pauper. Yeah, uh, Prince and the Pauper. Oh, Cinderella is that kind of story. Ever yeah. after the movie, when, yeah. when they finally take her seriously, when she dresses as an upper class woman to talk to the prince, and they'll finally listen to her. Mm-hmm. So, what are some other what are some other pet social issues that you guys like to write about? Um, well, my background is actually in social work, and so I did a lot of work with um, domestic violence and a lot of domestic violence victims, and I, I think that therefore domestic violence does come up a lot in my writing. Um, and I find it interesting that I guess to me one of my biggest pet peeves is I think in new kind of fiction, young adult fiction, is to romanticize um, more like domestic violence, the most abusive controlling relationships um, I mean, <coughs> Twilight Twilight. I mean, like, <laughs> Fifty Shades. Shades of Grey and I mean to yeah. me I know that when um, somebody was reading one of my stories she said you know this is a lot of violence I'm wondering if maybe it should be more PG rated and to me that's kind of it's such a prevalent problem in our society why kind of sweep it under the rug like let's actually talk about it and have that conversation that makes me think of two things one is rift tracks when mm-hmm. they rift mm-hmm. Twilight they, mean, they said something like this look from the uh, what was it? Uh-huh. This look from the abusive uh, lovers handbook number f- like rule number fifty seven or something. Ridiculous. There's an awful lot of leering in yes. those movies. Creepy <laughs> and like when you know, he follows her. It's a loss that implies don't be alone with me. Yes, it's not yet, good. Yeah. And yet, in a way, was kind of scary about that. And I'm kind of glad you brought this up. I mean, I don't want to throw Twilight and Fifty Shades of Grey. It's really easy. Her, bar, so it's really easy to do. It's because they're um, right now. It is. And I know I've got friends that are that love these stories, but yet there's a certain celebration in them of the abusive 
of abusive relationships. Beauty and the Beast. Beauty and the Beast is very much so. The magic of Stockholm Syndrome. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, well, actually, I was thinking, uh, I was going to make like a little bit of a defense of just failing the Bechdel desk completely, okay. depending on what you want to do. Mm-hmm. And, uh, Twilight's actually a good example, I think. Uh, I find the like character of Jacob offensive. Like all these, all the dudes in those books are terrible, but I don't think it matters that I uh, find them that way because uh, no, no, those books, doesn't. those books aren't for me. They're not. They're like fantasy, like they're fantasies for like teenage girls and middle-aged women. They're just kind of uh, <laughs> leave me out of this. I think, you know, I think Let it's be really written down. The guy is like, no, this is not okay. This is not okay with me because Jacob was like, the best character in those. Dumb it's a fictions. <laughs> it's fantasizing though, and I think like it's all right because not every book has to be the arbiter of reality. Yeah, it's okay for like one book to be like you know a little bit of just a fantasy trip on one side, and uh, that's what I think like those books are. Well, it's you know it's good to use your imagination, but also think about how. How many teenage girls who've never had a boyfriend are dreaming about finding an Edward of their own someday? Edward is not a person you want. You want to hook up with a Jacob because Jacob was actually worried about how she was feeling. And I've heard so many conversations between like middle school and high school students, like talking, "Oh, I want to find my Edward Cullen," and it makes me want to rip my hair out. I'm just like, no, that's not healthy. If you don't, um, if you you want to, uh, apparently, a lot of romance is built in the '80s. I guess this was the male power period, or maybe, but it's like they're all the male. I was reading some. I was reading an author that she's still writing today. But some of her early books in the 80s, like her male heroes, are borderline abusive here. So. Okay, if we're going to talk about that, can we just throw it onto uh, the big giant elephant in the TV world, or I should say the Please, movie yes. world, which is, you know, 007? Yeah. Ah, yeah. Who, if you go back to, uh, you know, Sean Connery, he is literally slapping women and then, for lack of a better term, forcing himself on them, and then they capitulate and they go, oh, James. And it's all good. Why did I resist? Yeah, and it's like, okay, <laughs> so, so now you watch these movies and they're kind of scary. And I love, you know, Bond and I love Ian Fleming and I, I love these books and I love the movies and I love them all. But I will admit that, and then you had the weird, okay, let's talk about it. And so Pierce Brosnan has to go through all this weird stuff where, mm-hmm. like, you know, women are making fun of him or something like that. And I love the new M, but that's not necessarily getting rid of, you know, the problem. Yeah. But and I have to say, Daniel Craig's definitely a step above. But you, we see this, and that's time, you know. Mm-hmm. That's that's a progressiveness. You know, our culture has evolved. We Thank God. Help. Craig is actually the first Bond I've liked in a film. Because before I had that reaction, like, who is this guy? What is no, no? These are not okay things to be doing to the people around you, to the women around you, especially. Like, I know um, David that you've read the book, so mm-hmm. I'm not sure how different they are you said Craig was closest Craig Craig and Pierce Brosnan are probably your closest to the Bond character as he developed into yeah um, Bond started off very much cookie cutter if you will in the first couple books he does die technically in um, from Russia with love sorry spoiler alert but he does get to come back in the next book I think Ian Fleming pulled a Arthur Conan Doyle tried uh-huh. to kill the character and then got demanded to bring him back because he did also write and I need to find out when he wrote it Chi Chi Bang Bang yes which Chee-hee. is a kid's book um, sort of. <laughs> it's got it's uh, charms it does, <laughs> it does. Um, it's a great steampunk novel go read it 
Wait, I haven't I haven't seen it or heard it. Chitty Chitty Bang Bang? No. Take, take some time. You watch it when you're oh, yeah. Go see the movie. It is wonderful. The car it is... The, it's about a car. What? It is about a car, car? that is awesome. This guy, this inventor, builds a car. Okay. And the car does all kinds of things. It's like got gadgets. It's it's a Bond car uh-huh. slash in Victorian age with steampunkified. And No, it doesn't transform. It just has wings that pop out of it. And all kinds of other stuff, yeah. and, and then they, they go they on a giant espionage adventure. So yeah. it's like, it's like Bond for kids with a cool. Car. Watch it with your half siblings; they'll love it. Yeah, it's yeah. it's really good. Oh, and no. they can get if past the dancing you, and singing, you, and it totally counts as steampunk. Please. It won't need it. It hurts me inside. Why would it hurt you? I don't know. I haven't seen it. No, it's a beautiful kid. The worst thing that'll happen to you is that you'll be singing the Chitty Chitty Bang Bang song. You will sing the Chitty Chitty Bang Bang song. Actually, let's talk about Disney for a second, not to throw them under the bus. But, <laughs> Let's uh, throw them under the bus. Let's no, do it. No, I'm not They're a big the company. You They're know, big they own the world. They can deal. How much social issues do you see in any of the Disney films that are for kids? It's They're always like at least ten years behind. They're always <laughs> waiting. Like they, well, they, they like their thing is family friendliness, you know, and like kind of pandering to traditional values and stuff, and like uh, so they're always waiting to see what's safe. Yeah. They don't. They're not going to jump out ahead and try anything crazy. A big company like Disney doesn't want to challenge the status quo. It wants to revel and reap the benefits of the status quo. They just want the dollars. Um, yeah, that's pretty much it. Do you suppose that's why many of the uh, the films that have passed the Bechdel test, as you read in the wiki article, are independent or smaller budget because they can make the um, daring decision to do things well, bigger, I th- pick, bigger. I think- I think what it is is more like studios care the most about their bigger budget films, Mm -hmm. so the mid-budget built films get a little bit less oversight. I I heard something about I forget if it it might have been Xena Princess Warrior. Warrior Princess. Warrior Princess. Thank you. It's been (laughs) too long. It's close enough. Close enough. But anyway, it was filmed in I think New Zealand. Yes. Yeah. But the thing is, the the big wigs would be say, oh, we want to revise this, this, and that. It's like, oh, sorry, we filmed that three days ago. Then they went on. So, yeah. yeah. Athena was popular. Staying on that subject, but but just showing a good example, if you want to see it, if you want to see how big wigs are represented as interfering, watch the movie Hitchcock, which is about Alfred Hitchcock making Psycho. It is very prevalent, but moving back to social issues... Okay, so Disney likes to be behind. I would agree on that. Well, okay, take something... I mean, even if you look uh-huh. at something today, like the Avengers. We're going to take the Avengers. Beautiful. Big, giant it. franchise. Mm-hmm. It technically stars one woman in Scarlett Johansson. Yes. There you then get Maria Hill. As far as I know, those two women never actually talk. <laughs> so I can't recall. There's a failure of the Bechtel test kind of right there. Also, uh, uh-huh. the Black Widow's costume is very different. Yeah. In, However, uh, yes. <laughs> having said that, Scarlett Johansson is an incredibly like strong-willed, powerful woman who mm-hmm. does actually really well in representing women. She's smart. She's intelligent. She kicks butt. She doesn't need anyone to save her. She flips she, around on those flying things. Yes. That too. Dude, she has she no poses. superpowers, and she's Batman. Exactly. She doesn't just she have is to the kick Batman your butt to kick your butt. And if you look at the new Justice League, or I should say Batman vs. Superman, it's probably going to fall into the same one, because it only really has Wonder Woman and Lois Lane. Are they really ever going to talk and have a conversation? Who knows? So, you know, like make a Wonder it. Woman movie and make it awesome Thank and you. Yes. go there. You know, I'm going to throw something out there. Since we went down into the uh, comic book area oh. with those movies, one big, era, one big form of media that does like to conquer social issues is comic books. 
And I know, I, growing up, I was looked down upon reading comic books. Mm -hmm. Okay? But if you really look at them, the X-Men the X X deal a lot with racism. Even though it's not... Well, each one had its own thing. So you had, had, had X-Men's doing the social classes. Mm -hmm. You had um, perhaps the first black heroes that show up in comic books. You're starting to break that there. You're, you were looking at um, the possibility of getting rid of racism and what possibilities are there. Go ahead. I'm, I'm just thinking about um, when I was in high school, I read a Green Lantern comic that was like huge because it had a gay sidekick character. Mm -hmm. And he was beaten up. He yep. was it was like a hate crime. Yep. He was beaten up and like that was the focus of the issue. Yep. Like Green Lantern went there. Yes. Uh, yes. They so did. Green Arrow went to drug abuse with Speedy's drug abuse. Right. And that was back uh, in the sixties. Sixties. This is all in the sixties. Yeah. And then you have Iron, Iron Man Man, Iron Man went with alcoholism uh -huh. and with uh, the handicap because for a long time Tony Stark was in a wheelchair. Oh, wow. So, so you know, we have, yeah, the whole thing with his heart and everything in the chest, and it, you know, took and out his spine. Daredevil always. Yeah, Daredevil's been yeah. kind of the blind, but true social issues, you can still go in. Uh, Wonder Woman has dealt with a bunch of, you know, feminine issues, and, and mm -hmm. you know, she's Feminist gone. issues. Well, okay, yeah. thank you. Good point. <laughs> thank you. Um, <laughs> she's dealt with a lot of feminine issues. She doesn't like to bring them up in public. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good point. What the comments are. Feminist, Feminist yes. issues, thank you. But the point is that at one point, Wonder Woman was yanked. She, there was a whole push to yeah. yank Wonder Woman, and women like Gloria Steinem stepped up and said no. Well, actually, so, what a, that was actually different. We heard her talk about this, and they didn't—they actually didn't yank her. They depowered her, and they were actually going more into yeah. the social issues than than uh, they kind of. And but there was a talk of ending the line because it wasn't popular and it wasn't anything. And, but there was Can women who came out of define feminist so that we do not get feminazi comments because those bug me so much. Let's just have them. I'm not worried about it. <laughs> okay, define not everyone it. is a duck like you are. They're not letting it roll off their back. No. So what? Is, so define feminist. A feminist is any person, male, female, anywhere in the spectrum between, that wants equal rights for genders. Period. A feminist can be a guy. A feminist can be a girl. Ideally, feminist should be everyone. Okay. So the feminazi comments. Uh, a different issue, I, this actually came up recently, I don't remember where I read about this, uh, the Golden Girls dealt with, well, they dealt a lot with ageism, and they dealt with mm -hmm. a lot of social issues, but the one I'm thinking about, they had, oh, now I remember, it was an article about AIDS. Really? Yeah. They had an issue where Rose, the, you know, Dottie mm -hmm. Rose, they, Rose, uh, because of a blood transfusion, got, you know, needed to get tested for AIDS. So that was breaking through the stereotype of who might have AIDS. Now, at the end of the episode, she didn't have it, but the whole episode was the issues with that. I think there was an issue where the grandmother, too, was, like, talking about, talking one of them through having a gay friend that did not think she was attractive because he was gay, and it was okay. Might have been Blanche. <laughs> Blanche would be the one who would be worried about... Being attracted um. to all males. <laughs> I'm just thinking another underrepresented group in kind of all forms of media is people with um, physical and mental disabilities. And oh no, you gotta wake up. And also um, mental illness. And I know that that Brad kind of brought it up with Iron Man and being um, Tony Stark in a wheelchair. And I think that that's also 
Like you very rarely see a protagonist with a, a physical disability, whether it's blindness, deafness, wheelchair. It's usually suppo- it's usually the character that needs to be helped has yeah the that problem. needs to be saved by somebody. And I think that like I, I know that some books, um, like for example, the Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime, has a yeah. protagonist who I believe has autism, yes. and I think that that's kind of a huge step forward. Well, the scary part is when people write those kind of things and do them poorly or don't do them justice. There's an example I always cite. I don't have the internet handy to look up who wrote this book, but that might be a good thing. <laughs> uh, then there's a game series called Mass Effect that is very popular, and so it had a series of spin-off novels. And the novels have been written by various people, but they take you know the same characters on these different stories. There's one protagonist, she was autistic, and the first book or whatever, I don't know how well they represented her, but no problem, and then a later author picked her up and decided to cure her autism because it was inconvenient. So she went and got it fixed, and that's not good, you don't do that. That's something I wanted to ask, actually. Do you find that in a lot of books, um, or anything else, if there's a a character with a disability of some kind, it's, it's magically fixed? depends on the disability. Sometimes it's the whole point. So, for instance, you can think of uh, comic books are good at this. So, mm. like the Hulk, you can think of him having... Anger know, management issues? Well, yeah, anger management <laughs> issues. But, but the whole point is he has to stay in control, and if he loses control, he really loses control. X-Men, in general, a lot of their superpowers also give them disabilities at the same time. I think it's more right? socially okay, yep. though. Like... But well, like, yeah, well, like depression and anxiety are seriously underrepresented and demonized, I feel like. And, yeah. I think a great um, series that's not on anymore, it originally starred Raymond Burr. They tried to bring it back, and it didn't do that well as a remake. Ironside. Yeah. Ironside was a cop who had been... I'm looking at Fedora to correct me. I think he was shot, and, uh, and thus in the spine, or somehow had his spine broken. He ends up in a wheelchair, and he still ends up being the police chief. And he's still going on these cases. And yet he's stuck in a wheelchair the entire time. But he's not the help, he's not, ooh, let me help you type character. He's actually running everything. Um, there is a story, and I really need to finish writing this one. Mm. I'm, just finding, I'm just finding it difficult to write. It is a story I was working on about a PI who is deaf. Guy always wanted to be cops. I, I've grown up with a hearing impaired or a deaf community, and there's a lot of social issues inside of that and I would love to see somebody address that type of social issues with oh. more disabilities um, there's a film called The Bone Collector that I remember specifically yes. it was a book first yeah. yes. Yes. Okay. because Angelina Jolie's the, the police officer that goes out and does stuff but she is not the mastermind no Denzel that. Washington's character is and he's 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 paralyzed he's in a, yeah. bed, in a hospital bed throughout the entire book yeah. and he wants to commit suicide yes well, actually, what I was going to throw out is, if you're looking for these kinds of social issues in your literature, uh, right now, contemporary new adult, which is one of the big genres popping up right now, almost exclusively, almost every book with, that's coming out deals with a different social issue on some level. Most of them are dealing with multiple social issues running through them and all kinds of stuff. It's a really big part of the uh, genre. So if you're writing that, or if you're at all looking for it, check out some new adult, you know, contemporary. As we're clo- we're not there yet, but as we're getting there, we're not there yet. But as we're getting to towards the end of the episode, let me ask you guys all a question: Is there any time you can write a story that doesn't have a social issue in it? Hmm. No, sure. No. 
I can totally write stories for fun. Right. Okay. You know, especially like you know. So I have a I have a bunch of kids stories because I'm a kids writer most of the time, uh, and you know. Even that, where it's got maybe even a little bit of a social... It's not. there. It's maybe so hidden under there that it's really just for fun. It's like, you know, some funness to just have a fun story. There's nothing wrong with that. Who was it that said every, every, every act of creativity or speech or something is a political act? I'm going to go look this up. Yeah, well, I, I, I'd, I'd it could go be Samuel Adams or Johnny Adams, but I'm not sure. I mean, no, I can see that. I, I mean, every time you're being creative, you are right. sticking it to you know the forces yeah. that tell you not to be creative. I thought it was so. I'm down with that. Yeah. Like, because even the little things that you may not think of is a big deal. Like, oh, and I'm sure yeah. there are. I'm yeah. sure all that stuff. But that doesn't mean I sat down and wrote it that way. Well, no. But I wrote a really cute story about two cats having fun on a sunny day. You know, there's probably a social issue running through that, but some. Uh, I just wrote about two cats on a sunny day. Yeah, and a college student can pick that up and turn it into some sort of an analysis. I'm sure that's of what English teachers war. are for, and that's why I love English teachers. Now, I will admit, in some of my novels, I put stuff there for English teachers. <laughs> you know, because I read those, and I know that that stupid post and Shane meant something, but that didn't mean that I really liked it. Yeah. But my English teacher made certain I knew that post meant something in Shane. Can so I add you, something to your question, then? Yes, you can. Hang on for a second. All right. If you're an English teacher, please find Brad's books and stories, <laughs> so that way you can teach them in yes. your class about the things that we authors really didn't think about. Um, Sorry. You said you could write about, like, two cats just having a cool fun day, and... Um, Jennifer pointed out that there could be a thesis on that. Oh, yeah. So I think there's often a difference between author intent mm-hmm. and right. what the readers pick up. So yeah. This is not a picture of a pipe. This is not a pipe. This is a picture of a pipe. But are you sure? Yeah. A cigar? A Tarzan is another one that mm-hmm. it, on one level, doesn't really address much social issues, but if you, you can read them into it. <laughs> so how much is the author responsible for that? Like, for not only writing something creative that is theirs but also well, being cognizant of what Melville wrote about a giant whale a giant white whale mm-hmm. you know but at the same time Melville also wrote probably one of the greatest struggles about man against himself and nature and everything else that's ever been written so you know it which did he do to be honest I don't know probably both who is the one who quoted uh, saying that if you write a book specifically to push a political agenda then you shouldn't be writing a novel. You should be writing a, an essay about your political agenda. Write your story. Your story is going to be a reflection of yourself and what you believe in and what you care about. Your political views will come through in that story, yep. but that shouldn't be the purpose of your story. The purpose so of your story true. should be expressing yourself. Not I completely purpose, disagree with that. Something that you <laughs> and you didn't say it, so I, I don't hold you responsible. <laughs> I know. See, I tend to agree with her. To, does it have to be the purpose of your story, though? No, like with the the Green Lantern story, mm-hmm. um, for example, um, there was a gay character, and he was used as a message: gay people are people. Mm-hmm. But that may be one comic, but it was part of a continuity. Yeah, and also, I was thinking and that's why people love it. In practice, that might be true most of the time, but I can think of a couple of counterexamples, like Uncle Tom's Cabin. I cannot believe that that was not published with the intention. Of being a screed against slavery. Well, I didn't say that it doesn't happen. I'm saying that when you create, you're uh-huh. usually better yeah. off. No, I, I mean, obviously, like, The Jungle yes. was written for a very specific reason, mm-hmm. but it also wasn't written to be a fun adventure story. But so yeah. how much is of that, of making sure that the other, whatever that is, is treated respectfully, how much of that 
is on the author to make sure that everything is done clearly so that the reader does not then take things in an awful way. Uh, the author's responsibility, I think, is to just not hammer you over the head with it. I mean, I uh, agree with the writing as a political act, kind of. Because if you, even if you write, like, a science fiction story, and you present a world where, like, uh, say Star Trek. Like, okay. you present a world where there's a bunch of different races and countries, and they're all working together in this, like, nice society in the future. You're saying, this is where I think things are going. And oh, that can this be, is where I want things to go. Yeah, or it can be that's where I want things to go, and that is a uh, that's a definite like knock against any current status quo that says no, these people are separate. One will always be below or above the other. I'm Star Trek's filled with lots of political issues, but I'm, I'm going to use I'm going as if I, I side with Jen with what she said. But if you, if anybody out there is like, oh, I need to sit down and write. A political issue one, and there are books that are written with that purpose. And I would agree with you with Uncle with Uncle Tom's, Tom's cabin. cabin. I'm also Uncle Ben. <laughs> Uncle That's Ben's right. Pan, yeah. yeah. Um, Uncle, Uncle Ben's Tom's cabin. Mean, sweetie. Um, <laughs> Not anymore. Well, yeah, I thought he was selling rice. Now. <laughs> yeah. But what I was going to go is, if you really like that, if you really think that as a new writer, that's what you should do. I'm going to raise a question to you. Do you like the writing? Do you like the either a the writings of Anne Rand, or b the movies of Michael Moore? Hmm. Well, there is a place I think there's a false choice there. Yeah, but definitely. Well, Michael well, Moore is a documentarian. He's yes. just he is not kidding you uh, about his rhetoric. I'm not gonna go down that road. Um, but I'm gonna say is it's like both of them like to put out, or Anne, of course, has passed away, but like and liked to put out folk political focused. Topic, media, responsible. Um, I was actually going to go back to Twilight. Mm -hmm. um, okay. You had mentioned the abuse, domestic abuse, and um, seeing a lot of that every day, and then seeing a book like Twilight explode, or Fifty Shades of Grey explode, and seeing them place so much value on a relationship status quo that's really unequal in a dangerous kind of way for women, especially. And that's dangerous for men to be seeing as, oh, this is what women want. So that book, Twilight, is not written to be political, but it has an effect nonetheless. So at what point does the author have to take some responsibility for that? I don't think she'll ever. Not, not that particular one. At what point <laughs> anyway. do you think an author, period, needs to take responsibility for the way that their work well, is... Well, I think it's the author's responsibility to expect and not try and block criticism of their work. And they might want to respond to this and say, because, I mean, there's there are books that are controversial that in their time were presented things at least as objectionable socially as, as Fifty Shades and Grey and Twilight. Um, but the point is, you put out the work, we have uh, freedom of the press, all that, but then there has to be freedom of criticism on the other side. Well, let's look at this thing in a larger scope, because I think you're being too limiting, yeah. that it's either political or it's a good yeah. story. Yeah. It can be both. It yeah. can be yeah. way yeah. more than that. It should be both. Take, for example, yeah. the my candidate for the great American novel, Huckleberry Finn. Yeah. yeah. 
And it is a darn good yarn that can be understood by middle schoolers or whoever and enjoyed on that level. But certainly it has plenty of social issues to tackle. That was one book From all kinds of various... Uh, points not only racism Classes but also racism, yeah. a parental abuse, yep. stupid ideas about warfare. It takes on lots of social issues and does it brilliantly because it is indirect. And I think, of course, that any writer has to stand to whatever he or she says because that's your job. You put it out there for other people to read, and they're going to get whatever they get out of it. But it's still the buck stops here. And Mark Twain was super good at that. He was really mixing in the the issues. Mm -hmm. He seems like the kind of guy who knew what he was doing. And I feel like there's Mm -hmm. the the break for me. I was going to say that I think that actually supports what I was saying, that he was writing a story that he believed in, and he wrote a story that he loved. He wasn't writing a story about any one of those specific issues. Well, that's what I'm saying. You can do in. both, and you can do way more and, than that. Well, I'm not, like, the point was you said that you completely disagreed when I said that quote, that you should write what you believe in, and you should do that. But that's what he well, did, well, and well, it was the second his, part of that that I objected to, I That guess. was the part that was me. Oh, okay. <laughs> no. Well, I, then I agree with you. I no, it's fine. Don't worry. I'm not, you know, I'm saying that, like, the, the point you're making, I, like, that was kind of what I was trying to say to start with, was that you're supposed to make something that is genuine to you, but if you're making something that is specifically just to talk about how war should be won. You should be writing a an essay or a textbook about winning wars, not framing it as a narrative and having people who want to uh, who want to read a story like an adventure story suddenly find themselves knee deep in a textbook that they didn't intend to pick up. I'm just thinking about that also, is that if it's too didactic of a message, then people aren't really going to want to read that for fun. I mean, I know for me, if I'm picking up a novel to read on the beach or on vacation, I'm not looking for something to, specifically looking for something to have a message in it or teach me something. I mean, if it does, that's awesome, but I'm usually using reading as an escape, and if a book is too didactic, it's going to completely miss our I completely agree audience. with that in a sense, and that's why I was saying earlier, you don't have to write all these issues, sometimes it can just be about two cats having but, fun on uh, Sunday. Something about Huckleberry Finn, that's one novel I would su- suggest getting either the annotated version or actually getting an abridged version because that's one of the things that... What? No. no. I'm looking at Georgie Goo Two Heads. <laughs> annotated version is what I would actually prefer because there are so many things that either go over your heads or mean something slightly different or a lot different today than they did back well, then. Let it. Let but, it. No, or the reader. But for instance... Every single time Huck refers to Jim, he doesn't call him Jim. He calls him uh, a word. A currently offensive word. A currently offensive word, Jim. And he did that very intentionally to show the reader, hey, black people are real people, and you can't get around that by imagining them as white instead of black. A lot of people today don't necessarily know that. So by reading Huck Finn, they can see that... You know, these words are offensive. They were once used, because a lot of people don't know that these words were used. But that's why I recommend getting the annotated version to explain that, because I think that would go right over most people's heads, and they would just find it offensive. That draws back to what Fedora said a while ago, a while earlier in the conversation about the stories that stay with us over time are the ones that Mm -hmm. do address social issues, maybe not necessarily directly, but they contain Mm -hmm. them as part of the whole. Well, every great book is going to capture its time. In that time, you're going to have the social issues of that time. So the Victorian age captured it. 
you know, whereas Reconstruction captured it, whereas the Victorian age, whereas the immigrations of the early turn, you know, turn of the century captured it, whereas the 20s capture it, whereas the Depression of the 30s, we have a whole new set, whereas the uprisings of the 60s, you've got a whole new set, whereas you have the cultural uh, explosions of today. So, I mean, each novel that's going to grasp onto that, it's going to, you know, and these are the great novels. These are the novels that carry through. These are the novels that you read in English class and everywhere else. But they all encapsulate one part of the human experience, a time of human experience, and that's why we love them. So, I, how do you... Okay. I think if uh, there's nothing else to take away from this session, it's that uh, social issues are definitely a treasure trove of conflict. There are things that you can delve into and you can find something very interesting to write a story about, no matter where you happen to stand on all of it. Exactly. I feel like this is a concluding in much the same way that many of our uh, episodes have concluded. Write characters. <laughs> give them layers. I know. We didn't even mm-hmm. talk about whitewashing. Oh, no. That's an entirely that's different conversation. Entirely different. Yep. So, um, yeah. That's another episode. But write characters. Give them layers like ogres and onions and cakes. And maybe this is my personal opinion for all it's worth. But I know, Melanie, you were talking about you would prefer the annotated version mm-hmm. of Huckleberry Finn, and I'm, I'm counter to that. I think going back to Looney Tunes. Looney Tunes was supposed to be for kids. No, it wasn't. And it, theoretically. No, well, and, no, 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 technically it, it originally adults. started in, uh, they were okay. close between they, movies. Yeah, okay. they showed in front of adult movies. They were yeah. supposed to make the people in the audience laugh, and they were then later... Okay, in a way I'm losing my, losing my thrust. Oh, well, <laughs> what I was going to say is... The kids, Once the it kids, hit TV, it was for kids. Yeah, yeah. wasn't it the kids? But the kids got a certain level of enjoyment out of it. Then you can go back to it as an adult, and you get a different level of enjoyment to it. A, reading a book for one time only... You don't ever get the whole entire essence of that book. If you're writing about characters, if you're writing about humanity, if you're writing about the human experience, you are more than likely, whether or not you intended it to or not, going to hit on at least a social issue, if not more more than them. Don't be afraid of them. Include them. Capture your time frame. But write from the heart. But write from the heart. Because from the heart comes a passion. If you're not writing from the heart, you are writing a college essay meant to be boring. <laughs> and we can all know how to come of those Thank you for five rings. Those are all great <laughs> books, not animals. No, I'm talking about boring books, boring stories. And on that essay note, notes. Yeah. thank you for listening, and tune in next week as Right Back covers yet another interesting topic in the writing industry. The Right Pack would like to thank STL Books for allowing us to record in their bookstore. STL Books and Gifts is St. Louis's newest independent bookstore with an emphasis on fine literature for adults and children and the most comprehensive selection of St. Louis books available anywhere. Visit them online at stlbooks.com or in person at 100 West Jefferson Avenue, Kirkwood, Missouri, 63122. Tune in next week as a right pack will conquer yet another pondering issue in the writing industry. Theme songs for Right Pack Radio were written and performed by Meredith Tate. All copyrights remain with her.